Thank you for that reading, Joseph. If you want to keep your Bibles there in Acts chapter 10, we're going to spend a lot of time there this morning, and uh, we'll look at uh, some more detail of what we were talking about in our Bible class. Thank you all for being here this morning. I appreciate you taking time to be with us, to worship God, and I pray that we'll all be uplifted and encouraged by the things that we discuss this morning. Well, it is common among preachers to ask to borrow a sermon. If they hear some, a sermon that is good, a sermon that they like, uh, it is common for a preacher to say, well, could I use that sermon? Could I borrow that sermon sometime and use it for my own? Well, this morning I want to borrow a sermon that we read about in Acts chapter 10. And I've entitled our sermon this morning, A Good Sermon, and I'm not saying that because I'm the one who's bringing the sermon. I'm saying it. it's a good sermon because of what Peter preached there in Acts chapter 10 and the response that he received from that sermon. Peter preaches a good sermon, a great sermon in Acts chapter 10. And I want to look at it with you this morning and see what we can learn from that sermon because I think it's applicable to us just as it was to Cornelius back in the first century. And it was a good sermon, but I want to tell you it was received by a good audience. As we talked about in our lesson this morning in verse 33 that Joseph just read for us in Acts chapter 10, the audience that heard that sermon was a great audience. Cornelius says that we are all here present before God to hear all things commanded you by God. Cornelius was listening to that sermon, realizing that he had accountability to God. And as we listen to any sermon, as we read any passage in the Bible, we need to understand we have accountability to God. God will hold us accountable to how we receive His Word. And we need to respect that and honor that in our life. And Cornelius wanted to hear it all. He wanted to hear everything that God had for him. He said, we want to hear all things commanded you by God. And that ought to be our response to the Word as well, that we want the Word of God. We want the Word of God presented, and we want all of it. Don't hold anything back. Cornelius wasn't interested in funny stories or feel-good uh, accounts that would make him feel good and just make everything seem happy. He wanted to hear the Word of God, and he wanted to hear it all, and that was remarkable. And I want to tell you, what he heard was a good sermon. And that good sermon started by Peter outlining to, Phil, to, to, to Cornelius our condition. Let's quickly, before we get started, read the entire sermon, beginning of verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with them. And we are witnesses of all the things which uh, he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. 
to him all the apostles, all the prophets witness that through the, his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Peter starts his sermon here in Acts chapter 10 by giving Cornelius a summary of our condition. He says here in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, that God is no respecter of persons. Read it again. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. I, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. God is no respecter of persons. That tells me that there is no double standard. There's no standard for you and then one standard for me. There's no standard for that group of people over there and then a different standard for that group of people over here. No, God is no respecter of persons. There is one standard that God holds people to. You know, there's a lot of people in the religious world today who seem to indicate that God would have a double standard, that He might hold you to a standard that He might not hold me to. And He might hold me to a standard that He doesn't hold someone else to. It's expressed many times in the religious world today, well, that we'll just have to agree to disagree. In other words, God will be okay with you if you believe that, and He'll be okay with me if I believe this, and those two things could be polar opposites, but we'll just have to agree to disagree. No, if God is no respecter of persons, then He's going to hold us all to the same standard. There's no, you're okay and I'm okay, but we're doing different things. No, God is no respecter of persons. Peter tells us that. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, God tells us what our standard is going to be. In 1 Peter 1, verse 17, And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. There's one standard. God holds us to the all, all to the same standard. There's no respect of persons with God. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 25, we read it this way. But he that doeth wrong shall receive the wrong for which he hath done. And there's no respect of persons. God is no respecter of persons. And you know, the tendency, I'm afraid, of us all is to think that we're somehow special. Yeah, I can read about what God thinks about sin and what God's expectations for men is, but, you know, I think God might give me a pass. Yeah, it says that, but I'm not so sure that'll apply to me. Maybe I'm engaged in some type of sin that I see the Bible clearly condemns. And I can read it there in black and white, but you know, I somehow excuse myself by saying, you know what, I know what the Bible says, but I think God might give me a pass. God knows what I'm dealing with. He knows the situation that I'm in. He knows my life circumstances. And I know it says don't do that, but maybe He'll give me a pass. God looks down and sees all that I'm doing, and He tells me to do this, but I really am not ready to make that sacrifice. I think God would be okay if I didn't make that sacrifice. Now, He'll hold everybody else to that standard, but He won't hold me to that standard. Doesn't that make God a respecter of persons? And Peter is very clear as he starts his lesson that God is no respecter of persons. And he also tells us in his good sermon that we're looking at this morning, 
that we must be obedient, that we must work righteousness. Back there in Acts chapter 10, verse 35, but in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. There's a lot of people in the religious world today who are teaching that God doesn't care how you live your life. That if you'll just believe in Him, you can live any way that you want to live. There are preachers on record who are telling people you can live any way that you want, that you can be a fornicator and you can die while you're fornicating and be okay. You can be a murderer and die while you're murdering and it'll be okay. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter how you live. Just profess faith in Christ and everything's okay. But Peter tells us otherwise. He tells us we must work righteousness. God demands it. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Titus chapter 3, verse 8 says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. God demands. And he's telling Titus here, you make sure you remind people that they are careful to maintain good works, that they live out their faith. Titus, tell people, God wants you to live in a certain way, not just profess a certain thing, but be living it, living it out every day. Are you? Are you careful to maintain good works? Are you living a life that's pleasing to God? Why? Why should we go to the trouble why would I worry about doing these things? Well, God wants me to do them. But God hasn't just mandated this just because He's some kind of tyrant. Notice what it says there at the end of verse 8. These things are good and profitable to men. God told us to live a certain way because He knows what's best for us. Because He loves us and He has our best interest at heart. And these things are good and profitable unto men. Earlier in the book of Titus, in chapter 1, verse 16... In Titus chapter 1, verse 16, he talks about some people who would claim to believe in Jesus, who would claim to believe in God, but they weren't living it. In Titus chapter 1, verse 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Here's some people in Titus chapter 1, and you'd say, do you believe in God? And they'd check the box and say, yes, absolutely I do. He says, well, they don't show it, do they? They're not pleasing to God. Why? Because they're not living like they should. They're not obeying Him. Could this describe any of us today? Oh, I claim to believe in God. I claim to have faith in Jesus. And I'd check that box on Sunday, but on Monday when I'm back at work with the guys... I'm living in a way that shows that I don't. Peter tells us that we must be working righteousness. And a close corollary to that, and a corollary that no doubt Cornelius had to come to the conclusion of, is that if God demands that we work righteousness, then sin is unacceptable to him. Peter didn't say this expressly in his sermon, but he leaves, leads the audience to that conclusion that if God wants people to be working righteousness, then sin is unacceptable 
to God. And we need to understand that in our lives as well. God wants me to be working righteously, righteousness. And that means I need to eliminate sin from my life. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we read, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to understand what we're dealing with when we're dealing with sin. When we're dealing with sin, we're not dealing with just some type of three-letter word that we talk about a lot on Sunday. A three-letter word that the preacher gets up and talks about you shouldn't engage in, but it's okay if you do. No, we're talking about an act, an action that will condemn our soul to hell. The wages of sin is death. Do you see it that way? Do you see sin as something that will condemn your soul to death? Or do you view sin as something that looks sort of enticing? Yeah, I know the Bible says I shouldn't do that, but boy, I sure wish I could. Doesn't that sin look all nice and shiny and attractive? Boy, I'd like to get me some of that. I'll tell you, with that attitude, if we don't see sin for what it is, if we see it as that shiny, nice thing that I wish I could get a bite of, then we'll ultimately end up failing. We must understand that sin is not acceptable. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, though, tells us that all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Peter tells his audience that God demands we be working righteousness. And I can conclude from that that sin's not acceptable to God and that sin will condemn my soul to hell. And then I see the fact that Romans 3, verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That puts me in a terrible condition, doesn't it? Because God's not a respecter of persons. He's not going to give me a pass. He's not going to say, He demands I do it. That's okay that you didn't obey me. God is not a respecter of persons. He demands I be obedient to Him. And He says that there's no room for sin in my life. Then that puts me in a terrible position. And that leads us to the next thing that Peter Print mentions here in his sermon. Is that God has a solution to the problem. That we've all sinned. That He demands us to be working righteousness and we haven't been doing that like we should. And that there's no respecter of persons. Then I need a solution to that problem. And that solution is... Peace through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 36 of Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Peter tells Cornelius, and he tells us, that we can have peace with our Creator through His Son, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. That's what we want, isn't it? But we have that available through His Son. There's nothing that we could do to restore that peace. It required the gift of His Son. Through the gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we can have peace with God. In, first, in Colossians chapter 1, beginning of verse 20, Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, we read this about this peace. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say whether they are things on earth, in earth or things in heaven. 
We have peace now through Jesus and His blood that was shed on the cross. But now notice, And you who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He hath reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. We were alienated from God as a result of our sins. We were enemies to God as a result of our sins. And yet God has made peace available through the gift of His Son. And we need to be thankful for that. Peter tells us our condition is terrible as a result of sin. But peace is available through His Son. And then he goes on in his sermon to tell us about how God intends to save the world. And the way that God is to accomplish that is through the preaching of the gospel. Back in verse 36 of Acts chapter 10 again. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. God chose by the preaching of the gospel to save men. In Colossians chapter 1 Beginning of verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, to save them that believe. We need to understand the power of the gospel. We talked about this last Sunday night as we were preparing for our community Bible study, the power of the gospel. Peter tells us about that in Acts chapter 10 in his sermon, that God chose by the preaching of the gospel to save the world. Paul talks about it here in Colossians chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That by the preaching of the gospel, God chose that He would save the world. How do we save people from their sins? It's not by fun and games. It's not by carnivals. It's not by concerts. We save people from their sins by the preaching of the gospel. That's how important it is. We need to respect the gospel for what it, what it means. Beginning of verse and we need to be dedicated to proclaiming it to those who are lost. In Mark chapter 16, beginning of verse 15. In Mark chapter 16, beginning of verse 15. And he said unto them, Go you into all the world and have career fairs. And invite people to carnivals with horse and pony rides. And make those little balloon animals for kids to be walking around with on their heads. And hand out corn dogs. And cotton candy, no. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's how God intends us to be saved. And that's what they did. In John chapter 20, beginning in verse 30. In John chapter 20, verse 30, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. 
We have the gospel preserved for us in the Bible, and it is what we need in order to be saved, in order to believe in Christ. God shows by the preaching of the gospel to save. I'll tell you something else that's important and vital to that, and that is the witness's account. As we go on, look at verses 39 through 42. Begin at verse 39. Peter says, And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with, and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Peter says, You can believe this gospel. Because of those who witnessed Christ after His resurrection. And we can believe and have faith as well. That's what the apostles were called to do in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, beginning of verse 21, Wherefore of these men which have accompanied us with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the same day that He was taken up from us, must be ordained, uh, one to be ordained, to be a witness with us of His resurrection. The apostles were witnesses of Jesus. They were with Jesus throughout His life here on earth. They knew that He had died and they witnessed Him resurrected. And they are witnesses to us today to prove that the things that are being presented in the gospel are true because the apostles witnessed it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter says we saw Jesus, and we saw Him after His resurrection. We're not making this stuff up. This is real. It's not just a story. Peter says that. Now, Peter was a coward and had fled from Jesus when he was put on trial, and he was crucified. He fled away and said, I don't know you. I don't know Jesus. I don't know who you're talking about. He fled, but now he says these things are real. Why? Because he had witnessed the resurrection. And it wasn't just a made-up story because we know from history. And in fact, what Jesus prophesied about Peter, that Peter paid the ultimate price. Peter would later be killed as a result of his proclamation. It's not made up, it's real, and we can have confidence in that as a result of the witnesses. I want to tell you, we can also have confidence because of the sheer number of witnesses. This wasn't just one person who says, yeah, I saw Jesus raised from the dead, you're going to have to believe me. I saw it, but nobody else did. Just trust me. No, there were hundreds of witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning of verse 3, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some have, are fallen asleep. After that He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all He was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. There were hundreds of witnesses to Christ's resurrection. You know, sometimes people go through mental conditions where they may hallucinate or dream that they saw something. And maybe you're talking to someone who, is in, who maybe has got dementia or Alzheimer's. They may say something and you know, well, that probably isn't true. 
And maybe someone who's in emotional distress might envision that they saw something. But I want to tell you, by the sheer number of witnesses, we can have confidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Because he was seen by over 500 people at the same time. They weren't making it up. Jesus was risen from the dead, and we can have great confidence in that. God chose to save people by the preaching of the gospel, by the witnesses' accounts that we can have great confidence in. And furthermore, Peter tells us we can have great confidence in Jesus because of the fulfilled prophecy about Him. Back in verse 43, To Him all the prophets witness that through His name, whoever believes in His name will receive remission of sins. We can have great confidence in Jesus that He is the Son of God because of all the prophecies that were fulfilled from Him. Back from the beginning of time throughout the Old Testament, starting in Genesis chapter 3, all the way through, interlaced throughout the entire rest of the Old Testament, we read of prophecies pointing to the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled every one of those prophecies. In Acts chapter 3, beginning of verse 18, in Acts chapter 3, verse 18, But those things which God before had shown by the mouth of all His prophets, that Christ should suffer, He has so fulfilled. I can have confidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Because of the message that has been preserved for me in the gospel, by the preaching of the gospel, by the account of the apostles who had been cowards, but now were faithful up until the point of having to die for the story that they were telling, I can have great confidence that the gospel is true. And by looking at the Old Testament and all the fulfilled prophecies. Peter's sermon is great, but he doesn't end it here. He talks about our requirement as a result. Our requirement as a result of what he has presented is that we need to believe. We need to believe the gospel, what has been taught. In Mark chapter 16, verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. You see... Obedience is connected with, with belief. I've got to believe, but that belief must motivate me to act. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Do you see faith and obedience connected again? I've got to believe. Peter says you must believe. Jesus tells us that we must believe, and that belief must be obedient faith. We've got to believe. And he goes on in his sermon and tells us we've got to have fear. Look back at the start of the sermon in verse 35. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. We've got to fear. As a result of the gospel and what we learn about God, that must evoke fear in our lives. This is necessary to be pleasing to God, to have a fear of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, having therefore these precepts, verse 1, Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Fear of God is an integral component in our lives as Christians. Now, it's not the type of fear that is uh, fearful that He's going to punish us, but it is the kind of fear that fears being punished if we don't line up with what he says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Fear causes us to live in certain ways, ways that may not be pleasant, ways that may not be easy. 
but fear will motivate us to live in a way that's pleasing to God. In, second, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Peter commands us, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And Peter, in his sermon to Cornelius, tells us that in all nations, those who fear God and work righteousness are accepted by him. And finally, there in verse 35, we see the clear instruction that those who fear God and work righteousness are going to be accepted by God. Our faith in God and our faith in Christ must drive and motivate us to obey Him in every area of our life. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, notice Christ here, it says, "...who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works." Not just a people who do what they have to do grudgingly. God said, I'll do this, so I guess I'll do it, but I won't be happy about it. No, God and Christ want people who are zealous, who are hungry to be obedient. In James chapter 2, verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. And that's not just talking to non-Christians, that's talking to Christians. We need to be working. We need to be working righteousness, working obedience to God. And so we have a good sermon. Peter presents a great sermon to Cornelius, to his family members, and to his friends. He talks about our condition, how God is no respecter of persons. And that is a good thing and a bad thing. I tell you, it's bad because there's not going to be any double standards. He's not going to give me a pass. We must be working righteousness. Sin is not acceptable to God. He's made peace available through His Son, through the preaching of the gospel, by the witnesses' accounts, and by the fulfilled prophecy, we can have great confidence in what is being taught. We need to believe that. We need to fear God, and we need to work righteousness in our lives. What about you this morning? Are you living like you should? Are you submitting to God in every aspect of your life if you're not? Time is now to make correction to that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've not obeyed what Jesus said there in Mark chapter 15, or 16, verses 15 and 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Have you been baptized in obedience to the gospel message this morning? If you're not, would you make the decision to do that so you can be pleasing to God? If there's anything we can do to help you spiritually, will you let us know while we stand and sing? you be